welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Before we get started with this week's episode, one update I wanted to share with you all is that at the end of this month, me and my wife are going to be moving to the UK, or in my case, I guess, moving back to the UK. The reason I mention that is I've just had a lot of stuff to do recently in terms of the move and getting everything shipped and travel documents and all of that fun stuff. I don't mean to make it sound onerous overall. This is something that we've both decided we want to do, and it's, it feels like the right time to do. Um, but the reason I mention it here is, as you may have noticed, the podcast schedule for a little bit now has been pretty out of sync. Like, I normally aim to get an episode up every week at about the same time, and what's that sort of become is, like, we'll average one a week, and they'll sort of be up when they're ready. And that's just, I think, necessarily going to have to be the case for at least the next month, probably the next two months. I'm still totally going to do the podcast, and... You know, I'm just going to have to work out as we start a new life in the UK how much time I can commit to it and, like, how it fits in with other commitments that I'll have to take on. But it's still definitely going to be coming out, but this is going to be a pretty major transition period for me, which I've done a number of times before in my life. I've moved around a bunch of times, and for this one at least, I sort of have the resources to do it properly as opposed to just winging it, which is nice, and I'm very lucky for that. But nonetheless, it's a big deal, and the podcast is kind of having to find time around other things. So I still aim to get roughly one episode a week out, but they're just going to sort of have to pop out when I have the time to get them out. So I hope you'll You'll all understand that, and then hopefully once everything settles down in a couple of months, I'll be able to rejig and sort of work out what a locked-in schedule is for that. Just as a note for Patreons, people who are sponsoring the show, as I'm sure you're aware, you're charged per episode, so like, if I'm not producing the content, you know, you, you don't pay for it, you know what I mean? So... Um, don't think that, like, and I think that's quite nice about that model, as opposed to doing, like, a monthly charge, because, say, the next month is absolutely heinous for me, I'm only going to get one episode out. I don't think that'll be the case, but just say, then you'd only be charged for one. If I don't produce anything, you don't pay anything. So, even if my schedule's a little bit erratic, um, if you're sponsoring the show, you can rest assured that you, you um, only pay for what you get, essentially. And then for everyone else, it's a free podcast, so just, you know, check your podcast feeds, they'll be up when they're up. And then hopefully sometime like mid-August or something, once everything settles. Um, I'll be able to sort of lock in a schedule. Um, I have got a bunch of great interviews recorded. Um, one of which you'll be listening to today, had a bunch of solo episodes prepped. It's just a matter of, like, doing the work to get them edited and um, out there and finding the time to fit that in. So anyway, that's what's been going on with the podcast schedule. Um, I hope you can all 
understand and uh, forgive that. But we still have great content in the bag, great interviewees. Um, I've written some solo episodes I'm pretty excited by. So it's all still in the pipeline. So with that as a sort of just context um, for just sort of um, where we're at with stuff, um, the podcast numbers are great. Our listenership is great. I get a bunch of great emails. Um, I'm just having to, you know, the next couple of months um, in particular, it, it um, like I say, they'll be out when they're out. Um, I think that's probably the best I can do, and I want to be realistic with that. Okay, so let's get to today's episode. Um, in this episode, I had the great pleasure of talking with David Livingston Smith about the psychology and the politics of dehumanization. We also got into a bit of a tangent, which I found really fascinating, on what ancient peoples, and some modern peoples, mean by, like, clean and unclean in a religious context, which was something I'd sort of been wondering about. Um, and I think I got, I, got, I got it much clearer in my head in this conversation. And then to end with, we got on to a little bit of contemporary politics, looking at dehumanization and racism in American uh, politics. Oh, and by the way, um, the fact that I'll be in the UK, I do not think at all is going to diminish my interest in American politics. I imagine we'll still be providing analysis and coverage of the 2020 election and forward. One thing that might result we'll see is I might end up doing a bit more on British or even European politics, but that's in the future. We'll see how that goes. So, just as a quick introduction, uh, Professor Livingston Smith is a professor of philosophy at the University of New England. His books include Freud's Philosophy of the Unconscious, Approaching Psychoanalysis, an Introductory Course, Psychoanalysis in Focus, Why We Lie, The Evolutionary Roots of Deception and the Unconscious Mind, The Most Dangerous Animal, Human Nature and the Origins of War, Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave and Exterminate Others, which won the 2012 Ansfield Wolf Award for Nonfiction, and an edited volume entitled How Biology Shapes Philosophy. His new book, which is just out and we're sort of primarily referencing today, is On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It, and he's currently working on an upcoming book titled Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization, which will be published with Harvard University Press. Uh, Professor Livingston Smith speaks in both academic and non-academic settings, and his work has been featured extensively in national and international media. He's been featured in several primetime television documentaries, and is often interviewed for newspapers, magazines, and radio. And now this podcast. So, this was a really interesting conversation, and it actually, although it doesn't directly relate, helped me get clear some stuff I need to be, have clear in my head for my humiliation thesis, which I think I'm going to try and get another episode out, a solo episode on humiliation and freedom, like reasonably soon, as soon as I can shelve out uh, an hour or two to record it. And I think actually those two, ep- the, this episode and that episode might be quite good to listen to together, just as a suggestion, although they'll also work as standalone pieces. So anyway, just with the context I was doing and whatnot, that was a bit of a long introduction. So let's get straight to it. 
It is my absolute pleasure to bring you this conversation on dehumanization with Professor David Livingston Smith. I am joined today by Professor David Livingston-Smith. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So just to start with, how do you describe what you do? If you're meeting someone for the first time, how do you talk about what you like to read and write and teach and think about? Well, that that can be a little complicated depending on who I'm talking to, right? So someone asked me what do I do? I say, I'm a professor. And they say, professor of what? And I say, philosophy. And if they don't know much about philosophy, they'll say, oh, so you talk about the meaning of life and that sort of thing. And then I try to explain. If they do know something about it, they'll say, well, what do you work on? And I'll say, well, for the last decade or so, I have been researching and writing about and talking about the phenomenon of dehumanization and its links with race and racism and related topics. How did you get onto that topic? Because not that it's not important, but it's not the most pleasant thing to think about, right? How did you get to that being your sort of area of focus? Oh, well, of course, there are there are lots, there are different dimensions to the answer to that question. Very generally, I don't do sweetness and light, as I say to my students. And I guess what's behind that is, as a philosopher, I want to devote myself to topics that promise to make a real difference to human lives, rather than playing conceptual games as a lot of philosophy is. I call it high-class Sudoku. <laughs> so that's part of it. But it's there's also an autobiographical component and an, and a, a more intellectual component. So the autobiographical component is I grew up in the Deep South in the uh, in the 1950s and 60s. So, so I'm not a young guy, and that was the tail end of the Jim Crow era. So I was embedded in a world where there was the most raw racism and dehumanization that you know you can imagine. I also grew up in an extended family uh, with my maternal grandparents who were Jewish refugees from, from Eastern Europe. They came over before the Holocaust, thankfully, but they were escaping the pogroms. And so there was that around as well. Um, and my grandmother, although she had to leave school as a teenager to work in a sweatshop, she was a brilliant self-educated woman. And she taught me about the history of genocide and anti-Semitism and racism and so on. She helped me make sense of the world that I was in. So that's the autobiographical side. I mean, that has lingered with me in my consciousness ever since I was a child. The other side is uh, in uh, 2007, 
I did a book on war, war and human nature. When I was researching the penultimate chapter of that book, I came across all this dehumanizing wartime propaganda. And I thought, oh, that's that's really, really interesting. And I looked further and I found there was virtually no literature on this outside of social psychology. That was the only area. And it was just kind of taking off in social psychology then. So a friend convinced me, he said, David, you've got to write a book on this. And everyone will have to cite you, he said. So I thought, OK. And that involved me burying myself in lots of different literatures and lots of dif different disciplines, because there was nowhere where all this stuff was pulled together. You know, the material from political science, from psychology, from anthropology, and so on and so forth. And in doing that, I realized that to really understand humanization properly, when it, it ramifies out into all sorts of other topics, racism, race, uh, cognitive biases, all ideology, all kinds of things. And so the project, you know, took hold a decade ago, and I'm still working, developing, revising, trying to figure this this strange phenomenon out. What's actually, that makes me curious to ask, what's the literature like on this? Because if I were to go to the literature on, say, justice, right, I'd find thousands, literally, of books. Um, mm. What's the literature like specifically on the topic of dehumanization? Is there a well-defined literature I can go to, or are you sort of um, <laughs> <laughs> out, out there on your own? The... Uh, uh, the literature is, I would say, 99.9% .9 social psychology. Okay. So, so social psychologists have been writing on this since about 1999, and they have a pretty large, pretty robust literature. I disagree with a, a lot of their um, assumptions and conclusions, but that's where the main literature is. In philosophy, there's hardly anything, I mean... My book, my 2011 book, Less Than Human, is the only single authored book on dehumanization in the English language. And there is one collection of articles, so one anthology in the English, and that's it in terms of books. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a big um, Industry. It's not a big intellectual industry, which is a shame because I think it's a very important topic that's changing now. Hmm. So there are people uh, working on dehumanization, mostly in a skeptical vein. It's mostly philosophers who think that dehumanization isn't really what it's cracked up to be. Hmm. Um, and there is in production now a what will be the Rutledge com, uh, Handbook of Dehumanization, which will be a, have a great interdisciplinary slate of authors. But, you know, that's how it is. It's an easy literature to master because there's not much of it. So let me do a two-part question then. Um, firstly, you talked about philosophy as making a difference in the world versus like a sort of abstract categorizing. Mm -hmm. So the first part of my question is, what do you think the role of philosophy is, or perhaps slightly sharper, what do you think the role of philosophy should be? The second part to the question is, 
what does philosophy bring to the table in this particular study, dehumanization, that perhaps social psychology would miss, or there's something additional that philosophy could bring online? Yeah, great questions and and complicated questions. For sure. Uh, so I'm not sure philosophy is just one thing. I, mm. I think it it's probably better conceived as a variety of different activities that have a kind of loose relationship to one another. And although I call myself a philosopher because I teach philosophy and my, my PhD is in philosophy, uh, I understand myself primarily as just someone who's trying to figure stuff out. And I'll draw on whatever resources I can in order to answer the questions that I want to answer. And there are a number of philosophers who operate in that that sort of way. Um, philosophy, a, let's say a philosophical education, is one that provides one with certain kinds of intellectual skills, which I think are useful for investigating anything. In fact, I, I like to say that philosophy isn't a discipline in the normal sense of the word, because if we understand disciplines by their subject matter, I think philosophy as its practice doesn't have a special subject matter. It's more a way of coming at things or a variety of ways of coming at things than some kind of, you know, demarcated domain like biology or physiology or mathematics or something like that. And that's why we have philosophy of anything you want to name. Right. So, you know, I, what what philosophy adds is the kind of conceptual sophistication, I think, and uh, precision and uh, a kind of sensibility, a kind of way of addressing issues, right? But, you know, it's not necessarily special to philosophy. It, it's, um, these things come in handy, but, um, but the problem of dehumanization can be approached in lots and lots of different ways. I guess where philosophy comes in really handy is that philosophy is the paradigmatic interdisciplinary intellectual activity. So as a, as a philosopher, it's perhaps easier for me to extend myself into lots of different literatures and lots of ways of thinking and try to understand how the vocabularies of those of those disciplines interface in order to explain dehumanization. And in the case of dehumanization, that's very, very important because I think of prime importance for understanding dehumanization. And I realize I haven't explained to your listeners what I mean by dehumanization, but we can get to that, is the interface between uh, psychology and politics. That to understand dehumanization, you need to understand human psychology and certain cognitive biases which allow us to dehumanize others. Uh, but dehumanizing beliefs don't arise mysteriously and spontaneously from within. They're psychological responses to political forces. So if you just go with the psychology, it's all rather bizarre and mysterious. Um, you know, we can't understand if we just look at psychology 
why Nazis thought of Jews as subhuman. But if we just look at the political sphere, we don't have any account of how the uh, forces of propaganda and ideology gain some purchase on human behavior and affect human behavior. We need to put these two things together. And yeah, go on. No, so I think it's about time we do a definition, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, Perhaps over time. Um, so what is dehumanization? Okay. Well, you ask different people, you'll get different answers. The term entered the English language in the early 19th century with, with none too specific a meaning. And um, there are, oh gosh, maybe eight or ten logically independent conceptions of what dehumanization is in the scholarly literature. And then if we go to the vernacular, you know, if you Google the word dehumanization, you get several million hits, you'll find that people use it in all sorts of ways. So it's incumbent on anyone who's writing and talking about dehumanization to be clear about what they mean. So, and, and ideally explain why they choose this conception of dehumanization over and above the others that are on the table. What I mean by dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of other members of our species as subhuman creatures. So it's something that happens in your head, and that distinguishes it from uh, those approaches to humanization, which see it primarily as a rhetorical practice. And it distinguishes it from those approaches to humanization that understand humanization as cruel or degrading treatment of others. Um, so that's what I mean. And, you know, right away, and please do, don't hesitate to tell me to shut up if I'm, you know, you have things you want to ask me. Right away, this raises puzzles, right? So um, I guess the main puzzle is how is it possible to encounter other human beings who are in all significant respects, indistinguishable from those whom we would consider human and yet regard them as subhuman creatures. Well, so that just begs a question, right? Yeah. So what what is going on? Um, well, actually, before we get to that, I this my impression of this as a non-specialist is this is something that isn't unique to the modern world. So I spent a bit of time, well, not literally, but figuratively, in the ancient Near East. And when you come to the propaganda of, I'll just take the Assyrian Empire, it was very common for them to portray people living outside of the rule of the king or in rebellion to the rule of the king as insects or vermin or dogs. That was a common rhetorical trope, even, you know, what are we talking about, 800, 900 BC, further back, right? So it seems fairly universal, right? It's not, it's not just something that came about with the Nazis or Jim Crow or something. Oh, absolutely right. And, and here I take issue with, uh, uh, with those historians who see it as um, a product of modernity. I, I don't think that's right. Uh, we can find its footprint in ancient Mesopotamia, in ancient Egypt, in ancient China, in ancient, in ancient Greece. 
Um, and we also find it very widely distributed. So, you know, um, societies living deep in the Amazonian rainforest also engage in dehumanization. Uh, so I, I think dehumanization is a is something that long ago, a sort of a, uh, a a cultural technology that long ago human beings hit upon for a purpose. I mean, it's a way of engineering human behavior. And uh, I think this was probably discovered independently in lots of different places, lots of different times. But we don't know, of course. Which does beg the question. I asked, um, I had a, a while back now, I had Orlando Patterson on, the great historical sociologist, and he's obviously very interested in slavery, um, which isn't the same phenomenon, but it relates. And I asked him that given that this institution evolved seemingly independently in a number of different societies, um, does that speak to something natural is a bit of a dangerous word in philosophy, mm. but innate or genetic perhaps about human nature? Um, does the fact as a... Um, an analogous question, does the fact that dehumanization seems to occur through a broad swathe of human history and that it seemingly crops up, these specific rhetorical strategies seem to occur again and again, does that point to something that's hardwired about humans, or is it a cultural innovation that's cropped up in a number of different times just as a sort of matter of this is a rhetorical strategy that works. Yeah, so if, if we're looking at what's hard, if, if we're asking the question, is it hardwired, we, we have to ask the question of what the it is, right? Dehumanization certainly isn't, per se, as a phenomenon. That there's, it, there's every reason not to think that the, that the tendency to dehumanize is a, some, a product of natural selection or anything like that. Um, it's like, like slavery, it's what the philosopher Daniel Dennett would call a good trick, right? It's something which produces certain advantageous outcomes. Now, in the case of dehumanization, um, Oh, and of course, if I can just rewind a little bit in my own head, uh, of course, dehumanization can only happen if human beings have certain mental dispositions that allow it to happen. So when we say we're talking about hardwiring, what what is the it? Well, I would I'm more open to the idea that the it are these psychological dispositions which then uh, make us vulnerable to dehumanizing propaganda and ideology from, from the outside. So I guess the question here, well, one question here that you've implicitly raised is, why is dehumanization so widespread and so robust? And my answer is a speculative answer. Um, but I think it's a good one. Um, we, 
we human beings are highly, highly, highly social creatures. We are by far the most social mammal that exists, you know, by a really long shot. And the only comparably social animals are very different from us. They're the social insects, you know, who, who live much simpler lives, right? We are highly social. And as any biologist will tell you, social animals have to have inhibitions against acts of violence against members of their communities. And, you know, that's just kind of true by definition, because if we're all you know, ripping each other's throats out, we can't sustain a highly cooperative social existence as, as, as we do, and as they do, as any social animal does. Um, so it, that doesn't mean there's no violence in the communities of social animals. It's just that it tends to be restrained. So uh, as uh, chimpanzees, for instance, in a given troop of chimpanzees, they will fight and they'll harm each other, but they will not go for the throat as they would with uh, members of neighboring communities that they run into on territorial boundary patrols. Right. We human beings being ultra social have to have really strong inhibitions against killing one another or doing serious harm to one another. But at the same time, we're very smart and we're capable of sophisticated instrumental thinking. And we're capable of thinking, gee, you know, if I were to wipe out my neighbors, uh, I could steal their resources, I could enslave them, I could create Lebensraum for myself, and so on. Left there, human beings would be, be between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, there are these inhibitions against doing these things. And what I forgot to mention earlier is that in our case, unlike the case of other social animals, these inhibitions extend to strangers. They extend to people outside the immediate community. So what was the solution? Well, human beings over the millennia worked out ways of disinhibiting aggression. And this is what I meant earlier when I said cultural technologies, right? You know, culture, you could see culture as to a great, very great extent, a kind of self-engineering, a kind of mechanism for, um, for shaping human behavior. And these include things like the use of drugs, intoxicants. That goes way, way back. You know, warriors before going to war, getting stoned, basically, to disinhibit. Uh, includes uh, mind-altering ceremonial practices, often involving chanting, rhythmic drumming. It involves religious ideologies. And it involves dehumanization. So dehumanization is a solution to a problem. The problem is the problem of overcoming inhibitions against doing violence to others. And that's why I think it's been, it, that's why I think it's so widely distributed. It mm. really does a job. It solves the problem that a lot of different people in different societies and cultural makeups have found it necessary to solve. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Is there, I forget where I encountered this thought, and I'll probably butcher it a little, but I, I think some people see a little bit of a silver lining here, 
in that they would say, and to my mind this is slightly too optimistic by half, but something like, people are naturally good and you need some sort of, like, ideology to make them capable of, like, doing the Nazi thing or doing the lynching thing or, you know, whatever, right? But, like, this is something, like, people won't naturally do unless they get this ideology in their head. That that seems a tad optimistic to me. It seems to me more like people will do different things depending on the ideas and attitudes they have in their head, and those ideas and attitudes can be good or bad, and it's not... You can't reach for some benevolent soul of mankind yeah. here. Um, and yeah, you yeah. yeah, yeah, this is not about benevolence at all. It's It's... Right, so let me illustrate something. This is... A lot of people get me wrong there. Here, these inhibitions I talk about are not moral inhibitions. These are pre-moral, automatic, clicking in kinds of inhibitions. So by analogy, uh, ants in an ant colony. Uh, ants respond to chemical signals from other ants such that they will not attack members of their same of their own colony because of the chemical signals. It's like a, pa a chemical passport. But when they encounter others who do not have the right uh, chemical signal, they will attack them and kill them. So this is nothing about ants being loyal to their group or kind or whatever. It's just how they work as a condition of social life. And I think the inhibitions I'm talking about uh, are of, of an, of an analogous nature. You know, when we look into another human being's eyes, and this is also very important, the inhibiting factors, they tend to click in when you're up close and personal with others. Uh, you can hate their guts, but still it's, and you can believe it's your duty. You can believe in, in your heart it's your duty to exterminate them and still find it difficult. And, you know, there's ample evidence of that. To, to look for most people, you know, excluding the 3% of any population who are sociopaths, for most people, looking into another person's face and plunging a blade into their viscera is extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily psychologically damaging. It's something that haunts them for a lifetime. And I think that's because it's overriding a kind of self-regulatory psychological mechanism, which, which, which is a product of human evolution and which is in place because of our highly social nature. So, yeah, I don't believe that human beings are benign. Uh, and I don't believe that dehumanization is necessary or sufficient for them doing serious harm to one another. Um, I do think that for most of us, when we are not personally motivated, it's really difficult to do. And even if we are personally motivated in many cases. So obviously, you know, someone comes and kills your child. Uh, there is a motivation, a very power, you're, you're, you're likely to, to harm them or kill them out of sheer passion, right? Out of rage, out of this outrage. But mass violence tends not to be like that, right? 
typically in mass, let's go back to the ancient Assyrians. Imagine you're in the front of a, an Assyrian phalanx. I find this really psychologically interesting. The, yeah. um, I've done quite a bit on the ancient world recently. I think a lot of people can get, like, there's a sort of, like, jingoistic, almost, enthusiasm for old-school warfare of, like, oh, mm -hmm. it's so cool, and it seems, like, quite heroic, I think, compared to, like, dropping a drone strike or something on someone. But yeah. my interest is more, what is psychologically happening to these people mm. here? Because one thing mm. we know, I think, pretty conclusively now from modern warfare is people's re reluctance to commit violence goes yeah. up the closer you are in physical proximity to someone. So a drone yes. strike is easy, shooting someone with a sniper rifle a bit harder, shooting them up close harder, and then the hardest is face-to-face -face with, like, yes. an edged weapon. Mm -hmm. And it's just so interesting in the... Um, there's sort of like a thought experiment, right, of if you had the ancient Assyrian phalanx and you got a bunch of modern people there, even, like, a military unit or something, could we still do that? And mm. I'm not sure, because, you know, in the ancient Greek world particularly, this wasn't professional soldiers, this was just the freeborn citizenry would go out and this was something they would all do. Yeah. And I just think it's like, as someone who's interested in culture and politics, you have to say there's got to be something that's really different about this culture and politics that it equips people to, and they struggled with it. I mean, one thing you get from ancient warfare is once people did it once, if they could avoid it, they would never do it again. But they still did it. Yeah. Um, and we know drunken drugs were a big part of it. But yeah. even with that, I'm not sure modern people could, you know? And it just, it just speaks to a very different, like, cultural carrots and sticks in the way that yeah, we it's, people. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, and it's so tantalizing, and it, it's frustrating that we don't have access to all the information we would need to make a call on that. No, I mean, a lot of the descriptions of ancient warfare are just obviously sheer propaganda. <laughs> um, but there are some interesting indirect um, sources. So I th one of the, the um, sources of information that I draw on, and as far as I'm aware of, apart from me and a student that wrote a paper with me. This has been very largely neglected, not entirely, but very largely. Our attitudes to, well, the attitude that the act of killing contaminates or pollutes the killer. And that's really widespread. And we find it in the ancient, ancient Middle East, actually. I mean, we find it in the in the Old Testament, the Bible, we find it in the Mesopotamian literature, rituals of purification, and even cultures that are notoriously militaristic, say the Romans, they were really big on this, right? All of the weapons and all the returning soldiers had to be purified at the end of the, of the, war, the war season. Um, and again, we've got one of, this is a phenomenon which is so robust and so widespread. It's, it's obviously it's bound up. If my analysis is correct, it's bound up with dehumanization because it reflects the very phenomenon that dehumanization, well, the very problem that the human, that dehumanization I think is, is a solution for a really nasty solution.
If there's an overly optimistic narrative that, like, people are good and they need ideology to make them evil, I've already said I think that. That seems a bit too cute by half. Yeah. But there's there's an overly pessimistic one as well, which, I mean, tell me if you disagree, I think we can also reject, which is this sort of um, um, idea of, like, innate bestiality of man. The idea that... Um, we're all savage, and we all want to go out and brutally murder and rape people and what have you. And it's only a sort of veneer of civilization that keeps yeah, it in check. That doesn't seem to be true either. That's, that's clearly false. I mean, it's I, I can't see any solid evidence supporting that. As far as I'm concerned, that's an ideological formation to basically justify keeping people in line. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's so, a great point. So there... The, the fact is, I think, this is our problem, <laughs> is we're ambivalent. We, we have these, this legacy as social animals of finding it difficult to perform these acts, which have been made easier, I guess, particularly since the 14th century with the invention of first the longbow and then other long-range weapons, because that gives you distance. But of course, physical distance just isn't sufficient. So dehumanization gives us psychological or moral distance. Um, so we have these this this legacy of reluctance, but we also have the attractiveness of doing harm to others. It, I mean, it can be really beneficial. Look at the history of civilization. Look at genocide and conquest and so on. So we have to deal with these twin forces. And I think that's what's making dehumanization work. It's a solution to this kind of burden's ass situation where you can't go this way and you can't go that way. I've got a question. This is a genuine question. Like, I've no idea what the answer to it is. Yeah. Um, but it seems like if you do have that sort of dilemma of we have a sort of social animal reluctance to harm yeah. members of our own species, but also like it can be, like, something that's useful to do. Yeah. Um, one common rhetorical trope that you see just across the spectrum, is not just to say this person isn't human or to negate it in some other way, it's to say they're an animal. It's to literally yeah. say they're an insect, they're a rat, they're... Yes, yes, so yes, what, yes. So, so what's going on with that? Okay. Like, why, this... don't, why don't we just say they're not human? Why do we specifically have to put them into the animal category? I'll, I'll explain it, and then we can not, you know, we can, we can take it a little bit further, because... This also includes they're a demon, they're a monster, they're a mm. fiend. Okay, so one of the psychological forces involved in, or rather, I, should I say psychological? Well, here the boundary is blurry. I mean, it's ultimately ideological, but ideologies are ideologies precisely because they can get those grips on the human mind is the idea of that nature is arranged as a hierarchy. Hmm. Now, intellectual historians, uh, there's like one classic book on this, which is called The Great Chain of Being. Hmm. It's written in the 1930s, and intellectual historians tend to think of that as the last word on the subject, and it's the one that's the text that everyone cites. And 
uh, Lovejoy, who wrote the book, says that, well, in late antiquity, this idea developed of the great chain of being or the ladder of nature in which every kind of thing was arrayed on a rank, sort of a massive ranking system in terms of their perfection. So God was at the top and dirt or demons were at the bottom, depending upon your particular version, and everything else is somewhere in between, and we human beings modestly placed ourselves just below the, the angels. Mm. And according to the story, this, you know, it was derived from ideas from Plato and Aristotle. It thrived in the Middle Ages and then kind of died a gradual death in the late 18th century, early 19th century, uh, where it was replaced by the Darwinian non-hierarchical worldview. As far as I'm concerned, that's false on a number of counts. First of all, it's still with us. It's embedded in our psychology. You know, well, how did you bring yourself to swap that mosquito? Well, it's just a mosquito. Hmm. Um, and we can find it all over the world again, including in cultures pre-European contact, so Mesoamerican cultures. Um, I that notion is important. I'm resisting temptation to go too far <laughs> to that because I want to answer your question. Is important because it gives us the idea of subhumanity. So subhumanity implies hierarchy. Right, right, right. right. So the idea here is that it's permissible to treat things occupying a subhuman rank mm. in ways which would not be permissible to treat human beings and those at a higher rank, mm. right? So, um, so in dehumaniz when dehumanization happens, the dehumanized population are demoted from the human status. Well, to demote them from the human status is not just to say they're non-human, it's mm. to say they're subhuman, right? After all, one might think of angels and archangels as non-human. Mm. They're subhuman. But there's a little bit more to it than this, which is that dehumanization not only makes acts of violence possible, in, in other words, it, it takes our foot off the brake, hmm. it also puts a foot on the gas. So when people are dehumanized, they're dehumanized as creatures which, well, the there are different kinds of dehumanization. Let's take the real lethal, the genocidal mm. dehumanization. They're dehumanizations as de dehumanized as creatures which deserve killing. Mm. Right? That's really important. It's not cute kittens and butterflies. Mm. Right? It's it's rats and lice and and, and and wolves and you know things that pose either that are predatory or are traditionally unclean and vectors of disease, mm. right? So that's why they're not human, just isn't good enough. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have that psychological oomph. Now so that you, you, you've got to yeah. go two ways. You've got to both take them out of, um, you've got to take them out of humanity, but then you've also got to add in something. It's not exactly. It's yes. not enough to just say you're not yes. part of this community. You also have to say, and on top of them not being part of this community, they have these other traits 
that That's right. mean they need to be treated in a certain yes. way. Yes. So that gives guidance on how they're to be treated. So if they're vermin, they're to be exterminated, right? In wartime propaganda, you tend to have the predatory images or game, you know, things that to hunt for sport. Genocide, it's you know, definitely disease organisms, parasites, things, things of this nature. We, we tend to like to have, like, boxes in our heads, right? Like, I'm just thinking if I walk into a building, I would put, you know, that guy goes in the security guard box, that person yes. goes yeah. in the, like, janitor box, that person yeah. goes in the office worker box. Yeah. And it's just like a sort of trick to go, oh, that person goes in the, like, thing you need to swap box. Exactly. Yeah. And that's going to vary from culture to culture, depending on the, the, the social norms at work, how that pans out. So, you know, in, in large swaths of the world to, to refer to um, dehumanize people as dogs has a kind of power because the dog is a traditionally unclean animal rather than, you know, man's best friend, <laughs> as, as we find here. So, so yeah, that, and this is where the, so there are really three dimensions at work here. There's the psychological dimension. There's the political dimension. And the political dimension is, well, why is it at this moment in time, this group of people thinks of this group of people as less than human? And then there's the cultural dimension, which determines the form that the dehumanizing conceptions take. Do you want to say a few words about the clean-unclean thing? Because this is something I struggle to wrap my head around. Because if you read, I don't know, the Old Testament, there's, I'm, I'm sure if you did a keyword search, clean and unclean mm -hmm. are going to come oh, yeah. up a lot, right? Yeah. The best I've been able to make of this is it's sort of like um, a pre-scientific like way of thinking about disease and health, but there's also a sort of ritual and religious aspect to it as well. I feel yes, like I haven't, like adequately theorized that or have yeah. like a f I feel like so often when you approach the ancient world they're just like visualizing and imagining something that isn't in our repertoire you know yeah. and I feel like when it went with, with the clean unclean thing I feel like I've got a bunch of anachronisms but I haven't got to the yeah. thing yet yeah you know yeah what I mean? good good actually this plays a really important role in 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 my work uh, my current work. So, you know, my first book on dehumanization, Less Than Human, 2011, I've, I've changed my views. I've made them much more, I think, nuanced and sophisticated since then. So in the new book on inhumanity, I, I give a somewhat different picture. So, so, first of all, I think the connotations of clean and unclean don't quite do justice to what's meant both in the ancient literature on pollution, ritual pollution, and in some contemporary, you know, non-Western cultures, which have conceptions of ritual pollution. Here I go to primarily, or at least initially, to the work of the anthropologist Mary Douglas in her 1966 book, Purity and Danger. What I make of what she says in there, I find a very confusing book, by the way, is that these, I, first of all, let's substitute 
abomination for unclean. Something is abominable. So if you go to the book of Leviticus, you know, these aren't just dirty things. You know, pork isn't just dirty. It's abominable. It's, it's, it's really horrific stuff. It's really dangerous stuff. Um, the, the picture that Douglas gives is basically this idea that in every culture, there is a conception of the natural order. There are these boxes that we can slot things clearly in. And politically, she doesn't say this much, but I emphasize it a lot. The way that we structure our societies are such that they're supposed to be sort of microcosms of how things should be, you know, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, right? The creator, it's the natural order. And that legitimates our social norms and rules and regulations and structures and so on. Okay. Now, whenever you create a system like this, where you're dividing up the world into boxes, there are things that don't fit in, that are anomalous, because nature isn't like that. Those things that straddle categories are felt to be very disturbing because they do violence to the basic conception of the natural order of things. That, I think, is basically the kind of idea we need to make sense of the cleanliness, uncleanliness idea. And like I said before, abandoning that, that terminology. It helps us make sense of the idea of the abominable. So These in many ways, it's just not the right word to translate it to. I think so. That's the thing. So I think it slots us in a mindset of modern conceptions of hygiene and so on, which are were not what these people are getting at. They're getting at something, I think, really much deeper and more disturbing. And this way of thinking actually plugs into research in several different areas, which are largely independent. And all of this plays into my theory of dehumanization. Let me... Yeah, oh, go ahead. Okay. So I said a little while ago, I haven't come back to it, that we don't just think of dehumanized people as subhuman animals. We also think of them as monsters and fiends and demons. I don't think those are mere rhetorical flourishes. Here's what I think is going on there. Um, I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just trying to decide how deeply I go into this. Um, right. So when, when we dehumanize others, like I said earlier, it's, it's something that doesn't arise spontaneously from within. It's a response to political forces, particularly uh, propaganda or sedimented ideologies in our society, which, state, which has it that these others are not really human beings. They might look human. They might act human. But in the end, on the inside, where it really matters, they're not human beings. And because these statements come from these authoritative sources, be it a Nazi race expert or the local pastor, we incline to take them on, as, as we do. I mean, most of our beliefs we are testimonial. They, we acquire them from people who are supposed to know. So here I am. Imagine I'm a, uh, a German growing up in the 1930s. Those Jews, I mean, the experts tell me they're their own dimension, they're subhuman. But at the same time, because of my legacy of ultra-sociality, I just can't help 
seeing these others as human beings. I mean, I look into your eyes and I just can't help seeing human. No matter how ideologically devout I am, there's a kind of responsiveness. Now, in that situation then, I have two contrary representations of you. I have a mental representation of you, which I can't seem to shake as a human being. And I also have a rep mental representation of you as some sort of vermin. In other words, I have a contradictory picture of you. That turns you into a monster, right? That, so look, when the Nazis talked about Jews as rats, they didn't mean little furry, you know, rodents. They meant something way creepier, way more disturbing. They meant rat people, right? Bizarre chimeras, bizarre fusions of incompatible natural kinds. So, so, the, that, so the fact that it straddles categories is a feature, not a bug. Exactly. And it ah, makes civilization okay. way more toxic. That's so interesting. Okay, let me, let me repeat that back to you to see if I've got it. So, like, I have a pet thesis, which I think you seem to share as well. The, let's just call it scientific, but that's maybe the wrong word. Whatever our sort of, like, view of the ultimate ordering of things is, mm -hmm. which for us is scientific, but for, you know, other people might be god yeah. or whatever right yeah, yeah yeah we want to see that order we we want to structure our societies such that they are structured as that ordering is structured exactly yes and actually I, i've done a bit of work on this um we use scientific paradigms and we expect society to cash them out so in like the 20s the 30s Everyone was obsessed with talking about evolution, as if, you mm -hmm. know, there's Herbert Spencer, but it's yeah. not just a libertarian thing. You had evolutionary socialism, you sure. had evolution plays a role in fascist ideology, it plays Absolutely. a role in liberal Eugenics and across the political spectrum. But that's yeah. not something we've outgrown, we've just shifted to a different scientific paradigm, because now we talk about social structures as Newtonian as discrete objects in stable, predictable mm -hmm. orbits. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about equilibrium yes. in, in, in Good. social and so on. But, but the yeah. point is, we want the ultimate... I'm just going to use the word scientific, but that's not quite right. We want the ultimate scientific ordering of things to be the social ordering of things. Yes. And what you're saying is, well, there, there's going to be cases where there's things that are sort of half in and half out of that order. Exactly. There are going to be these disturbing anomalous things. And by their very presence, they undermine our conception of the natural order. I mean, the natural order has to be all encompassing. So if something is doing violence to the natural order in virtue of not fitting into the categories, um, that is, it, well, it's unnatural. It's, and, and with all the abhorrent connotations of the unnatural. I'm reminded, so we're having this stupid debate on Twitter right now about free speech and liberalism and so on, which I think is a little overwrought. But I'm sort of reminded of that, in that liberalism, I think to a sort of reductive and, dare I say, quite reactionary type of liberalism, represents a sort of natural order. 
and we, we, we there's a mm. visceral reaction to things that are sort of half in and half out of that natural mm. order, way beyond what their objective level of threat to that yeah. order actually is. You yeah. know, yeah, they they are impure, in, right? In a but the, the, this notion that this is like ritual impurity. It's different than the way we use impure very often you know we you know something is uh it's uh something's fallen into your glass of whiskey and whiskey's impure well it does that's not abhorrent mm. right it's not disturbing but this is a sense of impurity which neighbors the notion of abomination which is uh an affront to our conception of the natural order and therefore an affront to the social order, which is supposed to be a microcosm of the natural order. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Dale Martin, who's a New Testament historian, um, and he always says you can't do the ancient world without anachronism. Like, you, mm. you're never going to quite get there, but there's better and worse anachronisms. So I guess mm. you could say, like, unclean is a worse anachronism, and something, yeah. something like disordered or abominable is a closer approximation to like what yeah. was really in their heads you know yeah i think i think that's the case that that's really that was really useful actually um great so we've got to close with do you want to do a little bit of applied stuff i've got a question for you actually something else so i do like so many interviews and then i find like thoughts from one like bleeding into sure another so Here's one. We talked about like what applied areas we could touch on, and we talked about race and racism in the US, and also, obviously, you know, the Nazis are sort of ground zero for this, right? Mm-hmm. One debate I've been following, and I don't have like a fully formed opinion on because I um I'm not a historian of either, um, is the um interconnectivity between the two, and there's a lot of people doing work right now on how I mean, I, it is definitely a historical fact that Hitler referenced um, the genocide against indigenous peoples in the US as a sort of model for what he was doing. And it is also a historical fact that there were people in the US, uh, Henry Ford frequently gets cited here, mm-hmm. who were quite admiring of what the Nazis were doing. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of two narratives, one of which is these are quite separate things, but occasionally they referenced each other. And the other of which is actually these were very similar phenomena that were mutually informing, and we should sort of see them as, like, different variants of fascism, but mm. not, not like, like family resemblances, as Wittgenstein would yeah. say. Different, yeah. but, like, within the same thing. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, well, I think there are, there are two different intellectual styles at work here. Some people like to make, to emphasize differences, and some like to emphasize similarities. Now, I find myself moving between the two, depending upon the nature of the project. So if my project is to understand how, as it is, to understand how dehumanization and atrocity arise out of racialization, then I'm going to emphasize the similarities, right? But of course, I mean, there is 
there are culturally and politically very specific things which shape national socialism, which did not shape, say, the, um, the Ku Klux Klan in its revival in the, the 20th century. There was mutual influence. I mean, the, the Germans sent a team of lawyers to the United States to examine our, uh, our, uh, our racial practices, in particular, our uh, anti-miscegenation laws. And, uh, and Hitler was inspired by these. I mean, we know that. In fact, the Nazis thought the Americans were a little bit too extreme. Yeah, right. So, so there is, there was influence, but I like to see them as two variants on something that's much larger, just as for instance, I see the dehumanization of say the Rohingya in Myanmar and the dehumanization of Jews in the third Reich as two variants in the same basic kind of phenomena. Okay. Um, do you, so, so there's, there's a common thread of dehumanization, but like we've said that that's, that's pretty widespread throughout mm -hmm. history and so on. So if, if you're trying to like say um, American racism and Nazi racism, I think to just say they both involve dehumanization, no, yeah, no, that, that's, that's, first of all, yeah, go ahead. first of all, I distinguish racism from dehumanization right. in the first place. Um, so I called in the book, I use the phrase uh, racism on steroids. That's dehumanization. So, because in the ancient world, you didn't really have racism. They didn't, it wasn't well, a category. This is, this is a little bit complicated. It depends what you mean by racism and race. Let me clarify. They didn't have are racism. Like, that's correct. Yes, yeah, that's sorry, absolutely But I, I think uh, to think of racism as our racism is, is too parochial. Um, to my mind, what the idea of, first of all, I think racism is baked into the idea of race. I mean, in the ancient world, they didn't have racism in our sense because they didn't have race in our sense. Uh, so that takes us, well, what's race? Now, when examining that question, I think it's very, very important not to be too myopic about it, that, you know, not to take our own version of race as the paradigm, but to, to you know, spread the net a bit wider. So in my view, the idea of race is the idea that there are a small number of fundamentally different kinds of people and that some are superior by nature to others and that membership in these populations is determined by descent. But, but what, what would distinguish those different populations from each other? So in the ancient world, skin color doesn't come into that really. Like That's it's correct. not. We don't have any sources that talk about skin yeah. color. Yeah, but, but you do. You do get like in the Greeks. They they think the the Achaemenids are 
yeah. kind of dicey. Yeah. Yes, you know, yeah. but it's not the the in group out group thing isn't a skin color thing. It's more to do with no. like attitudes and behaviors. Almost. It's it's a skin color thing in the United States and and amongst the former colonial powers because of the historical accident of colonialism, right? The fact that West Africans were enslaved. Um, you know, Europeans come along and they group these diverse peoples into one category, black, black meant enslavable. So there you see the manufacture of race right there. I mean, I'm sure in the, you know, the 14th century, if you had asked a West African, what are you? They would have said, I'm Akan or I'm Fulani or, you know, whatever the ethnic group was, not black. That's wasn't a, an ideological invention. Um, so I think racism then, so this idea of hierarchy, if I'm correct, is built into the idea of race because groups get racialized out of political conflict, right? Race becomes a way of subordinating another group of people and elevating one's own group. Uh, so what we get is a hierarchy in the human category. And this was made quite formal and explicit in 18th century versions of the great chain of being. Now, Europeans place themselves at the top of the human hierarchy, and then we place either sub-Saharan Africans or Native Americans at the bottom, you know, just a hair's breadth away from the, the great apes. Uh, dehumanization takes that further, right? So. Racism is just thinking of others as inferior kinds of human beings. Dehumanization sees them as subhuman creatures, in, right? Okay, so that is something that American racism and, say, during the Jim Crow era and German racism during the uh, Third Reich have absolutely in common, right? The idea that, first of all, the group is racialized, Jews and Roma for the Germans, uh, African-Americans for the Americans, and then they are dehumanized as subhuman creatures. Different creatures are chosen in the two cases, and this turns them into monsters through the process I described earlier. In the United States, it's, you know, particularly black males, because these things are very gendered as well, were, were and are conceived by racist whites as, you know, voracious beasts, um, super predators, in, but in a very kind of crude, primitive, savage way. The German version, for historical reasons going back to the 12th century, Jews were formidably evil and powerful beings, but were demonically intelligent. So they were monsters in a different sense. So that's where we get the cultural variation. But the basic themes under, underlying sort of the skeleton on which these variations are hung, just ex astonishingly similar. Hmm. But the, so there's a contradiction there, right, of like, uh, this person, well, not, let's be careful with words, um, this sort of creature, almost, you might say, on the one hand is a sort of lesser form of human, and on mm -hmm. the other hand isn't human at all, right? That's, yes. That's not logically coherent, but you're saying, if I, that, that, that 
incoherence is sort of a feature, not a bug, and it's the incoherence that makes them threatening. It makes them more threatening. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's, I'm, I'm thinking about feature, not a bug. I don't, I think the idea in dehumanization is they are subhuman animals. Right. So maybe it is a bug because the, the problem, you know, the fly in the ointment is we find it virtually impossible to shake our awareness of their humanness. And, and together, then, this creates this monstrous, demonic, kind of toxic hmm. representation. So the dehumanized, at least with respect to the form of dehumanization that we've ended up talking about, the dehumanized population is typically seen as dangerous in the first instance. Hmm. I mean, that's the basic propaganda. Against someone you want to harm, you know, you're harming them out of self-defense because they're they're going to come after your children they're going to take over your country so on and so forth right the transformation of them into monsters simply amplifies that dangerousness right so i mean here here's a good comparison i think one way you can really learn about the psychology of dehumanization is watching horror movies the monsters in horror movies are these uncanny fusions of human and, and non-human entities that do violence to the natural order. They're unnatural, and that amplifies their dangerousness. So, um, actually, more broadly, they're contradictory entities. So, let's consider a zombie movie, and this is something that's written about by the philosopher Noel Carroll who really, really influences my work on dehumanization. He, he does aesthetics, and he's just interested in horror movies, their, their, um, their aesthetic properties. Carol points out, well, these zombies in horror movies, I mean, really, they're tottering around. They look like things, okay, they want to eat your brains, but they look like things that a four-year-old could push over. But they're absolutely terrifying. And one of the things that makes them terrifying is the fact that they're alive and dead at the same time. So they violate the natural order. That amplifies their frightening character. I mean, wolves are scary. If you're being pursued by a hungry wolf, that's pretty scary. But a werewolf is way scarier. Why is it way scarier? Because it has that other element of what I call metaphysical threat, this and and Carol calls cognitive threat this violation of the natural order, which amplifies the sense of menace and dangerousness. How do you? So so one thing I've been sort of I, I sometimes I feel like it's a stupid semantic debate, and sometimes I feel like it's worth engaging in, is like how we talk about contemporary fascism, because I've generally sort of staked a position that. It's not inaccurate to describe certain elements of the current American right as sort of like quasi-fascistic. And my argument there is that, you know, there's not a tight definition of fascism that covers mm -hmm. all of its manifestations. It's, it's a family resemblance thing, and like, yeah. you know, Mussolini is quite different from Hitler in terms of mm -hmm. like the actual specifics of if you get down to what they were actually claiming about the world. 
Mm-hmm. But but there's sort of a number of common themes. Something like racial hierarchy is one. Um, a strong belief in the state is yeah. another. A sort of authoritarianism is another. There's a few more you could check off, right? Machismo. Yeah. Um, masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, mm-hmm. um, and you know, if I look at some of the the rhetorics of Trump or the sort of um, backlash to um, or the sort of justifications that get offered in defence of the police and the criminal justice system. Never mind what the the system itself is doing, the rhetorics people use to defend it, I think, are very revealing. This idea that, oh, well, this person was a criminal, so they can get killed, or this person shouldn't have questioned the police's orders, therefore yeah. they can get killed. Mm. Like, even prior to a debate about, like, the statistics and merits of police violence, like, the ways people defend it, I think quite commonly employ rhetorical tropes that are within the the family that we might call fascism. And then people will get upset and say, are you really saying that, you know, cultural conservatives in the US are, like, absolutely morally equivalent to Eichmann? And like, no, of course that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there are rhetorical tropes that fall within a set of family resemblances. Do you mm-hmm. buy that argument? I, I absolutely do. I, and I think, I think it's really helpful to think that way. I like Jason Stanley's approach. You know, there's a fascist style of politics. You know, fascism isn't a natural kind. And it's, it's, it's frankly, I think, a waste of time trying to identify the necessary and sufficient conditions for fascism. It's just, it's not that kind of thing. It is, as you said, a a kind of, there's a family, there's a significant family resemblance between different kinds of, of politics and, and associated rhetorics. And I think it's entirely re- legitimate to, to talk about those things in terms of fascism. So to close with then, um, you know, we talked about the US case a little bit. And feel free to bring the history back in if you want to. Mm-hmm. But um, how, if I said, if I get this like de- dehumanization, I just take it as like a lens to look at the world through. What work do you see that doing in contemporary American political discourse? How do you see dehumanization today in this country? Okay. I mean, I could talk for probably hours about oh, that. No. Go for it. <laughs> no. uh, l- let me just give you one, e- one example. So in a book I've just completed, not the one that was just published, I have another book on dehumanization, which come out sometime next year. I look at uh, 20th century German anti-Semitism through the lens of medieval German anti-Semitism. And it's it's really astonishing how the... Um, conceptions, the dehumanizing conceptions of the Jew in the, in the uh, particularly the 14th century, when it really took off, persisted and were revived in, in mid-20th century Germany. Now, there are important differences, though, and I'm getting to your, your question. Uh, one is that in the Middle Ages, because the overall paradigm was a religious one, 
Jews were seen as literally demonic, sometimes even equipped with, you know, horns and a tail and so on. They were in league with Satan. They were demonic beings. You know, they were the demonic killers of Christ, so on and so forth. Now you get to the 20th century. Nazi ideologues use that kind of language in a figurative way, because they didn't really believe in demons, right? But well, so some they, of them did, because there were some Looney Tunes. Yeah, Nazi yeah, higher command. Yes, yes, yeah. Maybe, anyway. maybe Himmler and this this occult guy that he was such a fan of. No, you're absolutely right about that. But generally speaking, they did not. Um, you know, their their version was social Darwinism, not the murder of Christ. So the language of of demonization was transformed into the language of essential criminality, right? That was meant literally. That was meant literally. So Jews were essentially criminal. They're bad to the bone. They are um, irretrievably criminal. That's embedded in their nature. And of course, that could slot into a social Darwinist sort of framework. And this is what we find in the United States. I think the the idea of the essentially criminal group is a secular representation of, of demonicness. It's, it's a dehumanizing representation. You don't have to use words like monster, demon, or, or, or rat, or louse to dehumanize. You just have to use the right evocative language, and the listeners will connect the dots. But of course, we we do get the classic dehumanizing language here too, certainly amongst white supremacist groups today. And, you know, our dear president has referred to but various word, people as animals. The word, yeah, I mean, Trump doesn't try to hide it. Um, no. And I think there's actually historical reasons for that. I think, well, this is another tangent, but I think... Obviously, the Republican Party's been in a long realignment from, you know, the Civil Rights Act when Democrats were the party of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And over a long period, they've kind of, you know, through the Southern strategy and so on, tried to market themselves yeah. to that base. But they've had to do so in a way that they don't scare off, you know, the business owner in New England who's not yeah. a racist, right? Yeah. But I think what's happened with Trump, and in many ways the party didn't realise it until he ran in 2016, is that realignment is now complete and people who can be put off by racism are no longer really in the Republican Party. And... You, you, you don't have to do the word games anymore. You don't have oh, oh, to yeah. say don't, state rights. You don't have yeah. to. You, you, you don't can have to just do say it now. Yeah. Yeah. You can say it. And, and that's, I think, very significant because a lot of people feel liberated by that. Yes. They can be authentic. The things that they might say privately to one another, they can say publicly now. And once that genie's out of the bottle, you know, that's powerful stuff when you give people permission to say what they actually think. But I think, I think it's a mistake, though, to think about it as a resurgence of racism. It's not quite that. It's that the way racism is politically expressed 
no longer has to go through a sort of plausible yeah. deniability filter. I, like, like it, totally was, it, it was there all along, but the political manifestations of it no longer have to hide. But because that's not about... acceptable. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's, not, it's not about the overall <laughs> level of racism in our society has gone up. No. If anything, it's gone down. It's more that... It's, it's, it's actually just a structural factor of the way parties market themselves to different voting coalitions, you know, mm -hmm. than yeah, it is. I agree. Yeah. But we then enter an age where, like, the fact that it we can't pretend that just because it's a structural thing, the fact that it can be expressed openly now isn't harmful. It's very oh, harmful. It's extremely harmful. <laughs> you want that stuff to be suppressed. Um, Sorry, I got a I got in the middle of your answer with my editorializing. Um, no, no, I don't. I don't even remember what it was that I was saying. But that I I think that's a, what you raise is a very important point. Um, and it does when I listen to conservatives talk. The the word criminality or that that person's a criminal. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That does so much work for them in a way that goes beyond, like, a sort of rational assessment of oh, deterrence yeah. so or it's, whatever. It's substantive. It's, it's not that they have committed a criminal act. It's that they are. It's, it's, the it's a property of them as a person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, we, we ran over an hour by a little bit. Is, is there anything um, you want to touch on that we didn't get to? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, cool. Let's end with a plug for you then. Um, do you want to okay. tell people how they can follow you and um, what your book's called and where they can get it? Okay, well, people can follow me by visiting my website, davidlivingstonsmith.com, which badly needs updating, but probably by the time this is aired, it will be updated. And they can buy my book on inhumanity, dehumanization, and how to resist it anywhere where books are sold. You can order it from Amazon. You can get it from your local indie bookstore. And I would be very appreciative of you purchasing a copy of this book. It's intended for a very wide audience. I, I don't use technical jargon. No, it's a pretty easy uh, read. Yeah. I want, I, want, I want it to be accessible to as many people as possible. Okay, terrific. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Toby.